It's Friday, September 1st, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Wallerson. Hundreds of thousands of Pennsylvanians will hit the roads this Labor Day holiday weekend with a full tank of gas. When it's time to refill the tank, most of those holiday travelers need look no further than the next service plaza. But getting across the Commonwealth in an electric vehicle takes a little more planning. EV charging stations are still relatively few and far between out there, and so far not a lot of thought has gone into how many stations are needed across the state or where exactly they should go. That's despite the coming surge in demand for electric cars that many analysts are predicting. There's clearly appetite in the state from market players to build out and take advantage of this transition in transportation, but some of the infrastructure necessarily needs to be built. There's new legislation now in the state capitol that would try to jumpstart the process of building out Pennsylvania's EV infrastructure. We'll find out how just ahead. First, let's review the week's environment and conservation news from across the state with the former secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, Mr. David Hess. Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us again. Sure, glad to do it. So we've been waiting for another shoe to drop in Harrisburg surrounding the budget process, and it looks like that shoe drop is imminent. From reading your blog, we've been getting reports that the House is likely to soon divert money from some certain special funds in order to pay for this budget that was approved earlier this summer. Revenue package still in process, and it looks like at least some of that money could come from special funds set aside for environmental programs and others. So let's get into some details. Which funds are we talking about and what would the impact be if this if this goes through? Well, as we're talking today, this is day 62 without a uh, complete state budget, if anyone's counting out there. And what, what the House Republicans continued to work on this week was a revenue package to respond to the package that the Senate passed the end of July. And one faction within the House Republicans is pushing this idea of essentially emptying a whole series of special funds that the state has, including three key environmental funds, the Environmental Stewardship Growing Greener Fund, the Keystone Recreation Park and Conservation Fund, and the Recycling Fund, uh, because they, they believe, which is sort of a misguided thought, that all those monies are sitting around idle and doing nothing. So they want to empty them and dump them into the general fund to to balance the state budget. And I guess maybe a dumb question, but can they do that? Is that legal? Is that something that's done? Well, I mean, we, we've seen raids before on the recycling fund and some other special funds, but not to the extent that they're proposing here. What they're proposing is to dump everything that's in those funds right now into the general fund. And if they do that, because of the way these programs operate, people that have already gotten grants, you know, a watershed grant or a park grant or a grant to uh, set up or expand their local recycling program, since they work on a reimbursement basis, you know, folks have to spend their money first for most of these and then ask for reimbursement. Up to 900 grants right now, as we speak, would be affected by this proposal to completely empty these funds and dump it into the general fund. 
Well, that's, I think, a really important point. It's people that are maybe only casually following this story or not paying much attention might think, oh, so there's less money for grants next year. Big deal. I guess we'll we'll deal with it next year. May not understand that this is money that's already been spent by communities in good faith, local money, in the expectation that it would be reimbursed. And now it looks like these communities will be left holding the bag for, for money they've already put out, their own money. Well, they they will be if they go ahead with this this plan to empty these funds. But it's I mean it's not only communities and groups; it's the contractors they hire, it's the landscapers they hire, you know, to plant trees or stream buffers. It's other kinds of businesses that local businesses that get involved in these kinds of projects. So you know the the impact is going to be real on these communities, and it's unfortunate that. You know, this this group of legislators apparently doesn't understand that or at worst don't don't care. They just see numbers there that could help balance the budget without enacting any new taxes. And to me, the impact on those 900 plus grantees uh, could could really be devastating. And we should acknowledge here just for transparency that that Pennsylvania Environmental Council does receive grant funding from the state uh, through through DCNR and elsewhere. And even though this is something that we we normally care about in principle deeply regardless, in this case, we, we actually have some skin in the game, institutionally speaking. Um, and you know, given that an, a number of not just organizations, but municipalities and local government entities are in kind of the same situation now, potentially, do you expect that to generate any pushback, perhaps at the municipal level or elsewhere? Do you think people understand what's about to happen, potentially? Well, I think people are trying to gauge how likely it is. And I think it is very likely that these funds will be will be raided. And I think so far, a lot of this has been an inside baseball game, simply because what we're talking about now are proposals that have been discussed in the House Republican Caucus and different clumps of people, different clumps of members. So it's been a lot of inside baseball. I think as people realize it will get more serious, as this gets more serious, you know, they will talk about it more publicly, obviously, because as you said, they have skin in the game now on this. Let's move on from this very cheerful subject and talk about something else. We had a development in a somewhat long-running lawsuit involving an uh, ethane cracker plant that's being built in Beaver County here in western Pennsylvania. This settlement that came down this week ends a lawsuit over an air quality permit, I believe. Can you explain what was at issue in this case and how it was resolved? This was a case uh, of the Clean Air Council and another group appealing the air permit that was issued to Shell Chemical Appalachia, Shell subsidiary for their ethane plant in, in Beaver County. And Clean Air Council appealed the case because they felt that there should be tighter monitoring, air monitoring around the air emissions that would be coming from this plant. The plant right now is is under uh, construction. And as part of the settlement, Shell agreed to provide additional air monitoring at what they call the fence line, you know, as it crosses their their property, and to do more to control any flaring uh, that and and monitoring the flares that they would use for any parts of their operation involving those flaring techniques. So I think this is a good settlement. I'm not surprised Shell is going the extra mile in this to settle this. Both sides seem very happy with with the settlement. And with respect to the Clean Air Council, this follows on the heels of a settlement 
a couple weeks ago in the Mariner uh, East 2 pipeline case uh, that also involves increased monitoring of that pipeline as they do construction all across the state. So, I mean, I, I think these are both very good developments that are going to better protect the environment and let the public know what's going on with these facilities. And that's, that's a good thing. We've all been watching what's been happening over the past week in the Gulf Coast and especially in Houston, Texas, where the flooding from uh, Hurricane Harvey has been just intensely, devastatingly severe. Uh, You posted earlier this week reminding us all that this is exactly the kind of thing that climate scientists have been warning was going to be coming, even though even though in this case it seems to have taken even many climate scientists by surprise the intensity of of what we saw in Houston. But you directed us back to the uh, climate impacts assessment report from 2015 that was put out by DEP with some uh, some Penn State scientists, if I recall, warning of uh, injuries and, and loss of life specifically due to flooding and also noting that Pennsylvania is one of the most at-risk states in the U.S. when it comes to inland flooding. So I guess my question to you is, is Pennsylvania ready to handle a disaster on the scale of Hurricane Harvey or anywhere near that? Does this horrific spectacle of what's happening in Texas right now move us a little bit closer to taking this this threat seriously? Does it change the dialogue significantly when it comes to how Pennsylvania prepares for and responds to severe flooding caused by climate change? I, I think a couple of things. I think, you know, first of all, I don't think anybody could prepare for what some people are calling a 500 or 1,000 year storm. I mean, Harvey is just off off the charts. And National Weather Service said the same thing. They called it unprecedented. They called it beyond anything they have experienced. So, I mean, that is, you know, sort of in a category by itself now. And I think people are going to be looking very closely at ultimately how they can become more prepared for some of these extreme events. But, I mean, typically what states, and Pennsylvania included, look at is how to prepare more for a 100-year, what they call a 100-year storm. And that's a that's a storm that you generally have a risk of 1% a year in, you know, something like that happening. And, and Pennsylvania has significant risks. I mean, the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency has done studies that show that somewhere between 329 and 430,000 people live in our 100-year floodplains. We have 131,000 housing units. We have $8.5 billion worth of potential damage to commercial and economic interests in those 100-year floodplains. I mean, beyond the numbers, I mean, you can see we have a significant risk. And, you know, it not only internationally, but in terms of our own climate report, as you alluded to. In 2015, Penn State presented a a report about Pennsylvania climate impacts and assessing what that may mean for Pennsylvania. And it, it specifically says that climate change will increase the probability that individual storms will be stronger, there'll be heavier rainfall, And we can expect what they said, extreme rainfall events, the number of those events to to increase. So it's not just sea level rise and those sorts of things. This particular report done by Penn State scientists said 
that Pennsylvania can experience more and more of these events. So I generally Pennsylvania has been rated good in terms of preparedness for these floods. Many people remember the 72 Hurricane Agnes uh, flood. That was somewhere about a 300-year storm, as I recall. Again, caused widespread damage, and I went through that personally. You know, so I had I didn't wade through water waist deep, but a lot of communities experienced a lot of damage, displacement of people. A lot of temporary housing was brought in to, to house people. So we've, we've got to be more mindful of what these kinds of increased number of storms can do on a sort of an everyday basis. Like I said, you know, I, I don't think anybody could prepare for a thousand year storm, but it's something that, that you can always improve. And having been DEP's emergency management coordinator and involved in some of these responses, I understand the power of water to cause that, that kind of damage, and that's just tremendous. Mr. David Hess, former secretary of the State Department of Environmental Protection, runs the PA Environment Daily blog and newsletter. Mr. Secretary, thanks again for your time. Have a great holiday weekend. You too. Thanks very much. This year, sales of electric vehicles are projected to top the 1 million mark for the first time, and economic forecasters see the trend intensifying over the next decade. By 2040, according to Bloomberg, internal combustion vehicles will account for less than half of all new car sales. By that same year, gas and diesel-powered vehicles will be illegal in France and the United Kingdom, under plans unveiled by those two countries over the summer. Volvo, meanwhile, isn't waiting for those deadlines. The Swedish carmaker announced in July it will sell only electric and hybrid vehicles starting in 2019. Other manufacturers have come forward with somewhat less ambitious targets, but the trend is clear. The biggest obstacle in the transition to zero-emission transportation isn't weak consumer demand for electric vehicles, but rather a lack of charging infrastructure in many places. With all of 723 public charging stations across a state of 13 million people, Pennsylvania is one of those places where infrastructure is not where it needs to be to meet the demand. In order to catch up, some serious thinking and some serious planning will need to happen. Well, a bill introduced in July by State Representative Marguerite Quinn of Bucks County would lay the groundwork for that process. For some analysis and insight on the measure, I spoke with Peck Energy and Climate Program Manager Lindsay Baxter. It seems like I'm always reading in the newspaper, seeing a local news, such and such company, such and such university has just installed an EV charging station on their campus, on their property. One could get the impression that Pennsylvania is awash in infrastructure for electric vehicles. Is that the case? No, I don't think quite yet. In fact, there aren't good numbers available on how many charging stations actually do exist and where those are located. But as you can imagine, for electric vehicles to really penetrate the market in Pennsylvania at any scale, uh, there needs to be a predictable, dependable network of these devices. So while installation of a charging station at you know a city parking garage or on a university campus is a very well-intentioned effort, for these vehicles to get to scale, there needs to be a more comprehensive and and thoughtful approach to how you build out the network. So we don't just need more charging stations, but we need them to be arranged and configured in such a way that 
people can get from one to the next and so that it's a, a feasible way to travel around the Commonwealth. How do we get there? Well, I don't necessarily have the answer to that, but Peck recently offered some comments on legislation in the state House, um, House Bill 1446, which is currently in the House Transportation Committee. We think there's some very positive aspects about that bill, and with a few caveats, we support its intent. So it does a couple of things. First, it instructs the governor or his designee to establish a goal for EV infrastructure and electric vehicle deployment in the state by projecting what kind of the business as usual case looks like and um, setting a target at least 50% greater than where the market alone is taking us. And then it instructs the electric distribution companies, the EDCs, that serve priority transportation areas in the state to establish a framework for how in their territory they would reach that goal. The legislation lays out what the stakeholders for that process would look like. The idea is basically if the EDC creates the plan for how electric vehicle charging infrastructure should be laid out in key corridors. The Public Utility Commission would review that if it's approved. Then the EDC can begin actually building out some of that infrastructure and the cost associated with that build out could be passed along as a surcharge to all of the customers in that electricity distribution company's territory. We're supportive of that idea. We offered a few suggestions of how the stakeholder groups could be a little more inclusive, making sure you have good expertise on not only electric vehicles, but also on transportation planning in general, and a little more community input as well. And the other amendment that we suggested was some language to better delineate between what part of the network the EDC builds out and what part the market takes care of. You know, PEC has for a long time been consistent in its belief that if the market can can do something, there's no reason for a regulated entity or a public agency to be doing that. There's clearly appetite in the state from market players to build out and take advantage of this transition in transportation But some of the infrastructure necessarily needs to be built by the EDC. And so we're looking at different models of of how you delineate where the utility ends and where the market takes over. We sort of see this legislation's intent as having the EDC build the backbone of the system that you need to have in place for businesses to, to take it from there. That's the electricity piece of the bill, but it also discusses natural gas vehicle infrastructure. And it's a slightly different process. Instead of putting that in the hands of the utility companies, it instructs the governor or his designee to do an assessment of the market for natural gas vehicle infrastructure in the state. We're a little less supportive of that piece for, for a couple of reasons. For one, natural gas has been abundant and fairly inexpensive for several years now, and we have seen some deployment of natural gas vehicles, but that's primarily been for fleet applications. It just appears that the economics work a lot better for vehicle fleets, particularly those that are doing out and back runs rather than long distance hauling. 
I think that just might be the better fit. Maybe there's not a reason to try and expand the market beyond that. The second piece is that the environmental benefits associated with natural gas for vehicles, there are some, certainly, in terms of criteria air pollutants, black carbon that gets emitted from diesel vehicles. However, natural gas will never get us to zero emissions. Whereas electric vehicles could potentially be fueled by zero emission electricity sources at some point. That is not the case in Pennsylvania today. I'm not saying that it is. I'm saying that these are a stepping stone to building the network that we need to get to zero emissions transportation options. And natural gas, just by necessity, it will never get us there. So while we could achieve some greenhouse gas reductions with this technology, it's never going to get the whole way to zero. Does it make sense to invest a lot of money and resources into building infrastructure that locks us into using natural gas for this purpose if it's never going to get us to where we need to go in terms of climate goals? The other piece associated with that is that those emissions reductions that I mentioned in terms of human health Those are going to be realized to the greatest extent for things like garbage trucks or buses that are in neighborhoods in close proximity to to human populations. When you look at the use of natural gas for things like long distance trucking or, you know, driving on the state's interstates, the turnpike, those benefits are less potent because of the distance from human populations that those air pollutants are able to dilute more. And part of the bill requires the installation of both electrical vehicle charging infrastructure as well as natural gas fueling infrastructure at the state's rest stops um, and, and welcome visitor stations along all of the state's interstates. We don't agree with that. We think that, A, it's a little premature being that the bill is calling for an assessment of what the opportunity is. Let's let's see what that returns before requiring infrastructure to be installed. But again, I think spending a lot of money and resources to lock us into a fossil fuel future is just not appropriate. Back on the electric side, though, is it accurate to say that this is more of just a, an administrative and organizational problem than willingness to actually build the infrastructure? Are the resources there to put these things in place once we figure out the best way to deploy them? Well, I think you alluded to seeing announcements and press releases from organizations that are already installing charging stations. I think from the market standpoint, there is an interest. Um, You know, Tesla's new vehicle has a long waiting list of people who are interested in in using it. And more and more, I mean, anecdotally, I just see out on the roads, I see Nissan Leafs, I see um, Tesla's. I think the question is, how do you take it from being the early adopters, the people who just think this is cool, the universities or the the cities that already have a mission of clean energy, how do you allow it to expand to the Walmarts or the Targets or the organizations and, and the individuals who don't necessarily have an environmental ethos but see this as an economical way to, to use their vehicle? You know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that depending on what part of the state you're in today, fueling your vehicle with electricity rather than gasoline 
could be the same or even more polluting. Some of our friends at Carnegie Mellon University did an assessment of this, found that in parts of the state, particularly with a lot of coal power plants, um, it's not necessarily today a transition to a cleaner fuel source. Our stance on it is that as the grid is becoming cleaner and cleaner, which we see that it is, let's be simultaneously building the infrastructure to to get to a, a zero carbon future. We've been talking a lot about electricity over the last year at PEC, and we just had this big conference in the spring that led to a report that we released this summer uh, all about the electricity sector in Pennsylvania. How does the issue of EV infrastructure tie in with that, that movement toward decarbonization in the Commonwealth? I think that's a great question. One of the reasons that we have focused, at least initially, on the power sector and our work with deep decarbonization is because in Pennsylvania, electricity is our number one source of carbon emissions. I mean, it's also a huge portion of our economy, and, and we're an exporter, so what we do here impacts other states. Transportation is our second largest source of emissions, and nationwide transportation is the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions. So it's, it's right there. <laughs> and when we talk about deep decarbonization, when you look at national and international reports, one of the recommendations is always to electrify everything that you can, from transportation to industrial processes um, to even home heating, things like that, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we know how to produce electricity with zero carbon better than we currently know how to produce fuels with zero carbon. Um, The other is the potentially promising technology of carbon capture and storage. So when you're switching a vehicle over to, to, to being powered by electricity, you're taking it from being a non-point source of pollution, you know, driving about emitting pollution everywhere it goes, to being a point source. So even if carbon and other pollutants are being emitted by the power plant, it's much easier to measure those, to manage those, to potentially sequester those and capture them. So it's really hand-in-hand with everything we've been talking about in our other deep decarbonization work. What's the status of the bill? As, as we were speaking, it's been introduced. Do we have sponsorship? Do we know what, uh, what's going to happen next? The prime sponsor is Representative Quinn, and it has a host of co-sponsors. It's been introduced, and it has been referred to the House Transportation Committee, which is where it sits currently. And as we're recording this, the budget talks are taking up much of the time and energy in both the House and the Senate. But hopefully we will see it moving soon. All right. We'll keep an eye on it and we'll talk to you uh, when it moves. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you. Lindsay Baxter is the manager of PAC's Energy and Climate Program. You can find our white paper on decarbonization of Pennsylvania's electricity sector at PEC-climate.org. That's P-E-C-climate.org. And watch this space for the next follow-up to that report when we take on the subject of carbon pricing. That's coming this fall. And that'll do it for this week's Pennsylvania Legacies. You can get caught up on our past episodes at the website, PECPA.org. That's P-E-C-P-A.org. The website for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, where you can find the latest on all of the work we're doing across the state in trails and recreation, in watersheds, in energy and climate, and of course, our policy program, we've got video, audio, blog posts, articles, event listings, and much more. 
visit peckpa.org. You can also listen to Pennsylvania Legacies via free subscription on the iTunes Store or in SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or any number of other places. Anywhere you do listen to us and there's an opportunity to leave a rating or review, we appreciate if you do that. If you like the show, please help us spread the word. We'll be back after the holiday weekend with a fresh episode next Friday. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.